Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From My Point of View. It is Tuesday, December 12th, and we're going to do a little bit different of a podcast today because full transparency, uh, I had a wedding on Sunday that I had to attend um, and couldn't really watch football. I watched the first half of the Texans-Jets game and the first half of the Niners game and the uh, Bills Chiefs game. So I didn't get to see the ending of those games. I watched the first half. I missed like the end of the one o'clock window and the witching hour there. Uh, So I didn't have much. I did watch the Monday night games, but I didn't have much time, obviously, to watch uh, football on Sunday. I did see the end of the Sunday night game between Dallas and Philly, which ended up just being a blowout. So we're going to talk a little bit differently about football today. It's not going to be more of like a game-by-game recap. It's going to be more of this, like some of the storylines that happened. Like C.J. Stroud, he got injured in the Jets game. Zach Wilson looked good. Um, Patrick Mahomes, the way he reacted after losing with that that offsides call that they had against Tony that I saw. like His reaction is overreaction, definitely an overreaction. Uh, Justin Herbert's out for the year. Just things like that. And obviously very heavy baseball stuff because we had our big breakthrough news. Juan Soto to the Yankees, praise be. And Shohei Hotani with a very convoluted contract to be a Los Angeles Dodgers is moving across town to the better Los Angeles organization, which I, so many people probably should have, should have saw coming. I should have saw coming. Um, and how that contract really breaks down because it's very, very weird. Uh, the Lakers win the inaugural in-season tournament for the NBA. Jaden Daniels wins the Heisman, LSU quarterback Jaden Daniels. Uh, and then I saw Godzilla Godzilla minus one, which I would like to talk about at the end of the podcast because it is a very good movie, very good and very fun and just really like well-written um, story and, and even like the characters. And then Godzilla just happens to be in it. Like that's really how it felt. So really, really good. And I would recommend seeing that. So we'll talk about that at the end of the podcast. But let's start with baseball or baseball news. Um, first being the first bit of news that happened, Juan Soto traded to the Yankees. So the trade took place last week. The Yankees get Juan Soto and Trent Grisham. And the Padres receive Michael King, uh, Drew Thorpe, prospect Drew Thorpe, Johnny Brito, Randy Vasquez, all pitchers, and then catcher Kyle Higashioka. Higgy. Thank you for your service. Um, good backup catcher. Uh, and then everyone else, Brito, he made a, a few appearances in the MLB, hasn't really stuck with the Yankees in the rotation, but he has some promise. Randy Vasquez uh, and Drew Thorpe prospects. Drew Thorpe's the, the kind of bigger prospect, but Michael King is the one that's, he's kind of like the headliner there for who the Padres get back because Michael King a uh, very, very reliable guy out of the pen for the Yankees for the past couple years. Uh, he did get injured a couple, uh, I think it was last season, but bounced back very nicely. He's very good. And now even at the end of this year for the Yankees, they were really kicking the tires to see if he could be a starter. And he looked pretty good. So the Padres want to add him to the bullpen, add him to the starting rotation, give him a whirl. Um, that is up to them. But regardless, solid pitcher. Really good stuff. I am going to miss Michael King. He was he was a, a good guy to have on that pitching staff. But the Yankees get Trent Grisham, who will most likely be platooning as a role outfield player with 
uh, Judge, Soto, Alex Verdugo is someone that the Yankees traded for, which very, very, very rare trade between the Yankees and Red Sox that took place. They get Verdugo. So he will most likely be starting. I would imagine it would be Verdugo in left, Judge in center, uh, Soto in right would be like the default outfield. Grisham's going to be platooning. Um, you're going to still have Oswaldo Cabrera get some runtime, uh, I would imagine. Jason Dominguez is getting, he has gotten Tommy John surgery. He's out probably till August. So you don't really have to worry about that right now. But I would imagine when he does get back, it'll be, you know, Soto in left, Dominguez in center, Judge in right would be the default. Uh, I like Verdugo. He's He's got, he's got skill. I do like Verdugo. So he'll, he'll get some run. He'll get some run. Um, but obviously this trade massive, 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 massive deal for the Yankees. I have already personally said this is probably the biggest trade acquisition the Yankees have had since Alex Rodriguez. And yes, I am including Giancarlo Stanton there. Uh, the reason why Giancarlo Stanton is not as big as this, despite coming off an MVP when they traded for him, he's 20, he was 28 years old. He had been, had been dealing with injuries throughout his career. Nothing like overtly serious but things that were you know questionable and they made you they you knew about it you know it wasn't something that was just like i can't believe we trade it's not like the yankees trade for him and then everyone was like i can't believe he's injured so much like you knew he had some injury problems but there was a risk there that and that the ceiling was that when he was healthy he was going to be a stud and really when he has been healthy he has played pretty well but injuries have derailed the past couple of years for him um and now he's like in his early 30s. He's aging pretty. He's going to age poorly. Like, let's just call it what it is. That contract and him, his output is going to age poorly. He's not the type of baseball player to age gracefully. So with Soto, he's 25. He just turned 25 years old. You can give him a 15-year contract. And like, I would be happy with that, you know, to the play till he was 40. He's going to age really well because he gets on base by other means other than just hitting the ball right? He draws a lot of walks. Um, he is a stud. I, I think he's a top five talent in baseball. I love Juan Soto. He's been one of my my favorite players. I never actually thought he'd be a Yankee. You know, you talk about it. It's like, well, the Yankees are going to get Juan Soto. And it just feels like that's such a, a big ask. I'm not really sure if it would even be possible, but here we are. And now it all hinders on like, how long does it take to find a contract for him that he's happy with? With the Otani thing, which we're about to get to, that changes things. Otani signed a 10-year, $700 million contract with the Dodgers, which it's not $70 million a year. It's all deferred money, which I will explain in a second. But if the Yankees did that with Soto, I would love that. Uh, I don't know if they're going to. I don't know if... That's something that he would be even interested in because Otani, obviously being like the biggest Japanese baseball player on the planet and being a multiple time MVP, his off the field money is probably pretty outrageous. Whatever he's pulling in for what he does in Japan, whatever he pulls in. I mean, he's in New Balance's New Balance commercials in the United States. Who knows what endorsements he has coming out of Japan that we don't see, right? All that money is plenty of for him to live off of. That's why the deferred money. Whereas Juan Soto, 
it, I have I mean, I don't really see Juan Soto in commercials. And even though he should be a, a global megastar, he's really not. Maybe one year in New York changes that. And that, you know, shows like, hey, the New York effect's real. You're going to get way more exposure than you were ever getting in Washington or San Diego. Like, it just is what it is. You know, baseball in New York is huge. It's going to be, you're going to be like the number one center of attention. That's that's what's going to happen. So I don't know what his contract's going to look like, but I do have full confidence that he will not see the light of day for free agency. I just don't see. I don't see how it's possible. Uh, there, the Yankees... I understand the Yankees haven't really been the Yankees for probably close to two decades now uh, in terms of like snatching up all these superstar players and then retaining them. But the history of the Yankees is that they don't trade for rentals, you know, and I'm not trying to sound snobby as because I know people that listen. If I mean, I am a Yankees fan, so I don't want to sound snobby when I say this, but like the Yankees don't trade for rentals. They trade to keep you in pinstripes. That's what they do. Like Brian Cashman, as much as shit if I, I, I've given him over the past year or two, he made a good, pretty good point where it's like George Steinbrenner's legacy lives on. Like his mantra really was that the best baseball players in the world should be wearing pinstripes. That's what it was. And that's why he went out and he, he really tried to get as many players as he could. That's why he tried to make, quote unquote, the evil empire that was the New York Yankees, right? He believed the best players in the world should be wearing pinstripes. And I would like to think his son, Hal, who owns the team and runs it now, is if there's any time to get like that, you know, like this is it. Um, You don't trade for Juan Soto. Not that you gave up a lot, right? You didn't give up like your best prospects. You didn't give up Dominguez. You didn't give up like Peraza or Volpe or whoever, right? Those guys weren't even in like negotiations. So the Padres didn't even try. So you didn't give up franchise-altering key pieces to acquire Juan Soto. It's not the end of the world if he leaves, but it would be incredibly disappointing. And it would almost be embarrassing. Like, it would end the Yankees' legacy as, like, this this team that, you know, wants to go out and spend money and and get these big-time players and compete for a championship. That is... It's basically dead now, but the Soto trade kind of revives that a little bit. And if you go on to sign Juan Soto basically for the rest of his career or what would be the rest of his career, then you're you're gaining a lot more uh, respect among your fans. Like you're you're actively showing them, hey, we're not just all talk. Like, look what we did. We went out. We got Juan Soto. He's 25 years old. He's entering or is in the prime of his career now. He's. I mean, Juan Soto's been a stud since he was like 20 years old. So the prime of his prime is very unique in that it probably spans a decade, you know, from the ages of 20 to 30, more than a decade, almost 15 years it's going to span. That's how good of a player he is, right? So you're showing people, hey, we're going out, we're getting this guy, we're, we're ready. Like we have our pieces, we have Judge, we have Cole, we just got Soto. Like these are the guys that are going to lead us to a championship. You're actively showing fans that you're ready. So to, I would be absolutely shocked to my core if the Yankees did not come to agreement with Juan Soto. And also if Juan Soto really didn't accept an offer from the Yankees, because this is like, is this not where he wants to be? Like he lives for the big moment. 
lives for it. If you saw him in that World Series, you know what I'm talking about. The dude, I mean, 20 years old, arguably already the best player on his team. Against like the the one at bat you have to do, you have to look at is against Verlander in the World Series. Verlander throws high and tight. He takes it, he does his little Soto shimmy. Verlander didn't like it. Tries to go up and in with a fastball again. Doesn't get it in enough. And Soto launches it into the second deck. And he carries the battle around the, around the bases like Bregman did in that same game. Like those are moments that create all-time great players. And he's doing it at 20 years old. Like he lives for the big moment. He lives for the big stage. And there is no bigger stage than playing for the New York Yankees. So to if he is the guy that acquires them and uh, pushes them over the top, he's going to get all the money he wants. Like that's not going to be something he needs to worry about. Um, again, I'd be absolutely shocked to my core if a contract, maybe not this offseason, you know, maybe negotiations take place. They get a nice baseline of what's going on with Soto. But I mean, I would love them to sign him before the season. That way, it's just something that isn't like looming over their heads the entire time. However, if it has to wait till next offseason, then so be it. Like, I get it if Soto would want to at least test the market a little bit, but he's not going to find a better circumstance between winning and money than the New York Yankees right now. I don't, I just don't think it's going to happen. Uh, Shohei Otani is the other one. So let's, well, Shohei Otani, man, it, I knew he was going to get a bag, but this was a whole debacle. So John Morosi of MLB Network misreported that he was on a flight to Toronto. The Blue Jays and Blue Jays fans thought they were getting Otani. Turns out he wasn't on the flight. And a couple hours later, he had to issue an apology for reporting misinformation. And then Otani signed with the Dodgers by posting a, he looked like he just Googled LA Dodgers logo and then screenshotted it and then posted it on his Instagram. And that's how he, and then with like, he had a nice caption and that was how people found out he was a Los Angeles Dodger. Um, makes all the sense in the world for him. He loves LA. Uh, it's a good spot. The West coast is definitely a good spot to be, uh, for Japanese players. Um, now the Yankees were reported that Yamamoto, uh, Yoshinobu Yamamoto was their top priority now. Um, he's their top free agent priority. It was reported that Mats Hideki Matsui and Masahiro Tanaka were going to be a part of the negotiations but uh, or a part of the meeting with um, Yamamoto, but turns out that wasn't the case. Uh, they're not going to be like that. So if I had to guess now, Yamamoto is probably going to be a Dodger because this is how Otani's contract works out. Originally, it is a 10-year, $700 million contract. The most guaranteed money for any professional athlete in North America ever. $700 million over 10 years. Now, naturally, you think, wow, paying Joey Otani $70 million a year. That is crazy. Not the case. Shohei Otani, $680 million of Shohei Otani's money is deferred money. So this is what this means. This is from Jeff Passan. Shohei Otani's $700 million contract calls for him to be paid only $2 million a year for the next 10 seasons with $680 million deferred until the end of the deal. He will be getting paid $680 million from 2034 to 2044 or 2045 for that 10 years he will be getting paid 
$680 million. Only $2 million per year for the next 10 years while he's actually playing for the Dodgers. The rest of the money. So think Bobby Bonilla. Remember, you know how ESPN goes crazy every like July 2nd or whatever it is, June 2nd. And it's like, oh, it's Bobby Bonilla Day because the Mets pay him like a million and change every year until like 2030. Actually, until like 2035, I think. It's like that. That's what people, they, they make a joke about it because the Mets, when they had that contract with Bobby Bonilla, Bonilla made it with it's all deferred money. And now that's why he collects a million or so from the Mets every year until like the, until 2030 something. Otani's doing that times like 68 million <laughs> or times 680 million. Like he is taking that. And, and there is a clause in the CBA that allows for this specific circumstances. Uh, so the Dodgers doing this, it feels like a cheat code. It is legal, um, but it does feel like a cheat code. Now, obviously, from the years 2034 to 2045 or uh, 2034 to 20, uh, 2044, that 10 year period where they are paying Shohei Otani $68 million a year or whatever it comes out to, um, that when they are paying him the rest of that $680 million over the 10 years, that's going to hurt their pockets because now you're paying a guy to not play for your team all that money. And this, so the structure of the deal, first reported by Fabian Ar Ardaya, who I believe writes for The Athletic, um, is unprecedented. Multiple people involved have said Otani proposed the structure and that towards the end of negotiations, he said he wanted to defer his salary. His off-the-field earnings are significant enough for him to do that. Uh, and it is it is crazy. I mean, Yamamoto now feels like it's basically a done deal that he's going to the Dodgers. The fact that Otani's deferring all this money means that, one, there's not a big salary cap hit and not that there is a salary cap but, you know there's not a big uh you have to pay a luxury tax or whatever so there's not a big tax hit for the dodgers you're not having to pay shohei otani on your payroll for a lot of money you're going to be able to go out and get more pitching more position players whatever like otani being the one to propose that is bonkers like this dude just wants to win all he wants to do is win clearly and when you talk about guys who are like, oh, I want to win, and then they take these massive contracts that lock up their team's salary, you're like, all right, well, you don't really want to win. You know, you just want the best situation for yourself. But show, this is like the definition of like, I want to win so desperately. I'm willing to go 10 years of making like just a couple million bucks to play baseball, even though I'm a top two, three player in the world. Um Top, 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 top one. I mean, Shohei Otani is the best player in baseball when he's healthy, and he has been healthy for the past several years. So, Otani being the best player in baseball and being like, "Yeah, I'll play, I'll play for the Los Angeles Dodgers for two million dollars for ten years, as long as we go out, we sign other people, and we try and win." That is an unprecedented move, and just absolutely insane. Um, I would say over the next 10 years, the Dodgers have to win at least two championships for this to be like a worthwhile contract. One would be nice for starters, obviously, but two is like you that you need to win multiple championships within the next 10 years for this to be like legit. And Otani's not getting any younger. Like he's already 29 years old. You know, he, he has to. They, they got to make the most of it, man. They have to make the most of it. Uh, now, whether whether they win or not for him, 
obviously I think he would be disappointed in that. In terms of like bread, he's fine. <laughs> in terms of money compensation, he's going to be just fine. Uh, so with Otani, it is pretty, and it, it's an insane contract, man. It really is an insane contract. Something we've never seen before. Um, and I, I think, I mean, if you're an Angels fan, you have to be killing yourself. Like this is the worst imaginable outcome is that you have two top 10 players, two top five players in Trout and Otani. You finish 500, six seasons with them together. You finish under 500 every single year. You never make the playoffs. And Otani just says, screw it. I'm out. And he goes to the Dodgers of all teams. The Dodgers, that's got to kill you, man. That that's like if Aaron Judge went to the Mets. Like that would have that would have killed me. That would have killed me. Um, but the Dodgers continued to be a juggernaut, and now you got Shohei Otani. So I'm uh, I'm very excited to watch them play baseball this year. It's gonna be it's gonna be fun. Um, the Yankees and Dodgers do play next year. I think they said sometime in June they play. So that is going to be one of. I would imagine that will probably be one of the most watched regular season baseball games, maybe ever. Uh, assuming everyone is healthy, because obviously if there are injuries and people aren't playing, that's going to suck and it's going to hit ratings. But if, you know, Betts, Freeman and Otani are all healthy and Judge and Soto are healthy. And like if Garrett Cole's pitching in that series, it's going to be insane. So, I mean, I'm... I, on a different note, I am really still hoping that the Yankees get Yamamoto, but the fact that Otani deferred all this money and the Dodgers basically can still spend a good amount of millions of dollars going for after other players, it, it's hard. And, and especially too, like the Yankees and Dodgers both have history with Japanese players, but the Dodgers more so. Uh, the Yankees have The Yankees have had Tanaka and Matsui the Dodgers now with Otani there and, and their history, it feels like they're probably the friend. Now they have all this money to spend. It feels like they're probably the front runners to get Yamamoto again. I hope I'm wrong. I hope the Yankees get him. I'd really like him. And you know, he's only, I think like 25, 26 years old as well. So getting him and Soto who are both 25. And then you have like, you have judge and Cole who are both in their early thirties now. And then you have Soto and Yamamoto who are like, would be essentially the one B's to Cole and judge like that would be exceptionally uh, great for the future of the Yankees uh, to have those two guys in place as Cole and judge age. Uh, but whatever, man, I, that's besides the point. I I'm, I would love Yamamoto to be a Yankee. I just, my gut tells me he's probably going to be a Dodger. So uh, I obviously they're not done. The Dodgers more is going to happen. Uh, so we got to be on the lookout for that, but quite a start. All right. Next up on the docket, we got the Lakers winning the inaugural in-season tournament. Naturally it's the Los Angeles Lakers. LeBron James named the in-season tournament MVP because of course uh, feels scripted, but they did beat the brakes off the Pacers. They actually beat the brakes off of everyone. Um, especially down the stretch, they kicked the crap out of the Pelicans and then they kicked the crap out of the, and they kicked that, the, the crap out of the Pacers too. In the final AD had like 40 and 20, he was unreal. And, you know, he put together one of those games that reminds you like he's 
easily, easily a top 10 like talent in the NBA. It's just for whatever reason, he's just like so inconsistent. Sometimes he, it looks like he's not even trying. Like it is, it is pretty bizarre. But like the Lakers, LeBron was on record. Like he wanted to win the in-season <laughs> tournament. Um, whether it was because he wanted to get all his his players and coaches paid that that five hundred grand that was the prize, uh, or just for you know wanting to be able to say like, hey, we won the in-season tournament. Uh, regardless, viewership was up. For the in-season tournament games, I would say that the inaugural in-season tournament was a rousing success in terms of viewership with the NBA. And it's like, you have to commend the the league for attempting something different. The league and Adam Silver for attempting something different. Because when you're going up against, especially the, the final being in uh, the first week of December, right? You're going up against college football uh the nfl of course and those are like juggernauts in terms of viewership um and to, to try something different to have it succeed and honestly to have really competitive games like the lakers had a couple blowout wins in their last couple of games including the championship but the emergence of tyrese halliburton during the in-season tournament he is a bona fide star and he is a guy that's going to be in the forefront of a lot of people's minds for the rest of the season. People are going to be looking at, at Tyrese Halliburton to see what he's up to. Uh, he's had a sensational year so far. And the Pacers themselves have had a, a pretty solid year. I think they're the highest scoring team in the NBA right now. So they're good. Uh, the Lakers, I mean, the Lakers, when they're clicking, man, they are so, 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 so good. The Pelicans were a bit disappointing in, I mean, Zion and Brandon Ingram, they, I mean, they, the Pacers just got, I mean, the, the Pelicans just got the doors blown off of them by the Lakers. It wasn't even close. So that was a little disappointing to see, but all in all, like there are a lot of good things that came from the in season tournament. Mo again, most specifically the fact that there was a ton of highly competitive regular season games because you have to remember even though this is the in-season tournament it's like oh there's this this cash prize and it's in vegas and all that they still count as regular season games and a lot of times I, I, christmas day is pretty important to a lot of teams like a lot of guys want to win on christmas because you're on national television there's only five games on you have your uh, your own dedicated time slot there's no football there's no other sports like christmas day really is the nba's day and it's around that time that you really like know what teams are for real and which ones aren't. So to have the in-season tournament going on up until now and, and to have these guys who are, really are competing, like they, you don't see that kind of level of competitiveness in the NBA regular season, or at least you haven't for the past several years. And it was nice to see that a lot of these guys, a lot of these teams, like they really, they wanted to win. Like they, the, the cash prize was a good incentive. Um, it was significant enough to where like the average NBA player would love to have an extra 500 grand in their pocket. Cause like who wouldn't, you know, even LeBron was happy to get an extra 500 grand in his pocket and he's a billionaire. Um, so it's, it's, it was a, a good incentive, a good idea a nice thing to, it didn't really change the landscape of the NBA regular season 
it was a nice little like wrinkle thrown in there that allowed that incentivized players to play harder and it worked. Um, I mean, for the NBA themselves, the Lakers and LeBron winning the first one is like basically all you could have asked for in terms of getting eyes on it and popularity and whatnot. So having the Lakers do it. So I would categorize the in-season tournament as a success. Um, I'm, I would imagine they're going to stick with it, but regardless, uh, it was fun. And I think having it, you know, in Vegas, in that atmosphere and, uh, you know, letting the players basically have the, the night to themselves, right? Because the game in Vegas, start, I think the game on the East Coast started at seven or eight. So in Vegas, it's like four or five, you know, these guys, they they play the game and they're done by eight, nine o'clock. And now you're in Las Vegas with an extra 500 grand coming to you. And the next day off, what, like, what do you expect to happen, right? Like, these guys are going to go crazy. They probably went nuts, went to the clubs, whatever, gambled, hit the tables. Uh, it, it Couldn't imagine what those NBA players were doing. But Vegas was probably popping at that time. Um, I would have loved to have been in Vegas after the in-season tournament final and try and catch where the Lakers were at, you know, maybe <laughs> uh, just get a glimpse, a glimpse of them. That probably was pretty cool to see if you were just like out and about at the, on the strip during that uh, weekend. But like, think about it, right? Like you're, you're in line for, if you win the in-season tournament, you're, you're really like lining yourself up to have a good time. Um, so that, I mean, it's a great place to choose a great location, in my opinion, to choose where to have this in-season tournament. Cause you're really promoting like, Hey, don't be stupid, but go out and have fun for winning this extra 500 grand. You guys like deserve it. Uh, so it's pretty cool in that aspect. Um, I would imagine the NBA continues to do it next year. Uh, and maybe until, I don't know if it, if whenever it gets stale, if it gets stale and then you call it out after that, but you call it a day after that, but regardless this year alone, the inaugural year, definitely a success viewership up. You got good competitive games, the emergence of some young talent, um, and then the old guard with LeBron James still coming out on top, man. <laughs> I love the memes that came out, out of that, too. They were like, LeBron James, 38 years, 340-something days old, or 350-something days old, is the youngest player to ever win the in-season tournament MVP. <laughs> uh, just silly stuff like that. I love it. All right, college football, real quick. Um, just briefly, the Heisman Trophy winner, LSU QB, Jaden Daniels. Uh, it was a pretty lackluster Heisman year, in my opinion. Um, Jaden Daniels, exceptional quarterback, horrible defense for LSU. So unfortunately, we're not going to be able to see them in the college football playoff. But uh, with who lost? Someone lost. That was like really the, probably the front runner. They lost like Michael Penix. I think the top four ended up being Jaden Daniels, Michael Penix, Bo Nix, Marvin Harrison Jr. Um, the Heisman Trophy is weird. It, it, much like the NFL MVP, it, it, it has become over the last 10 years a glorified QB award. Um, and I do say that for at least in the NFL, like I've seen a couple of running backs win it. I know it's mostly a QB award and rightfully so. But I have seen at least a couple running backs win it, but no one's even come close. I mean, 
Derrick Henry rushed for 2,000 yards almost twice and wasn't even hinted at as an MVP. Didn't even finish as a finalist. Like Tyreek Hill might break 2,000. I mean, he did get injured on Monday night, so hopefully he plays. But he has a chance to break 2,000 yards this year. Um, He's not going to be in the MVP. Like People are talking about Brock Purdy being an MVP. Meanwhile, Christian McCaffrey is on his team and has a way better of a case. In my opinion, I think McCaffrey should be MVP. That's my opinion. I know like Dak now is getting a lot of run. Um, Lamar even is going to get a lot of a lot of hype here at the end of the year, considering how well the Ravens have played and and they're they're poised to be the number one overall seed. So Lamar is going to be in that dis- discussion. Dak's going to be in that discussion. I, I know Brock Purdy is going to be in that dis- discussion, but it should be uh, McCaffrey. So I, I just I don't know. It's it's a little bit weird with with voting nowadays. Heisman Trophy is the same thing. Like I haven't even the, so defensive players have won the Heisman before, uh, but I don't think I've I don't know the last player to even make the t- crack the top four that was a defensive player for Heisman voting. I'm not sure. I can, I don't think I can remember. So it's it's a glorified QB award. Jaden Daniels winning it. I feel like didn't. Like he had a great year, but it just felt like it wasn't. And it's probably because LSU wasn't a college football playoff team. So it was a little bit weird to be like, oh yeah, like Jaden Daniels won it, but we're not going to see him because his defense was horrific. So it, it I don't know. It, it just doesn't. Congratulations to him. I mean, he deserved it. He was spectacular. He's a stud dual threat, like going to be a, a high draft pick when he declares for the draft. So, uh, for him, I mean, and it's not this year, by the way. I think it's next year. I think he's a sophomore right now. So he has one more year of college football before he goes to the draft. But he's going to be good. I mean, he is good. So it, it's, I mean, everyone else, like Michael Penix doesn't move the needle for me. Bo Nix, like they're both older quarterbacks and guys who probably aren't going to be like cornerstone NFL QBs, in my opinion. Um, now they'll probably go first round, but. I just, I don't really see it. I don't, I don't see them being like the guys that are like, yeah, we'll lead your franchise for the next 10 years that they just, they don't, they don't move that needle for me, unfortunately. Um, Marvin Harrison Jr. is a stud though. He's going to be good. So I'm excited to see him, but yeah, the Heisman trophy, uh, Jaden Daniels, 2023 Heisman trophy winner. Congratulations to him. From college football to the NFL, a bit of news here that came out this morning, Tuesday morning again. Uh, Justin Herbert out for the year. He had surgery on his finger. Chargers are a debacle. Obviously, they have not fired Brandon Staley yet, and they probably won't until the rest of the year. What is the point? So I was, I he should have been fired four weeks ago, but he wasn't. So he's just going to finish out the year. Then I would imagine as soon as the last game is played for the Chargers, then within 24 hours, Brandon Staley will be fired and they will be on the head coaching hunt. Maybe they'll just promote Kellen Moore. Who knows? Uh, but regardless, the Chargers need a major, major overhaul. So some of the storylines around the league that I wanted to talk to with the games that I know about, uh, Texans-Jets. The Jets win 30-6. to C.J. Stroud left this game with a concussion. Zach Wilson actually looked good. Uh, they put together six consecutive scoring drives in the second half, I believe. So uh, a, 
I mean, it was it was impressive for the entire first half and and in the second half too. It was just pouring rain, horrible conditions to play sports, and the Jets still put up thirty points. So you talk about like this spark. Now I'm not like going to make the mistake of going all the way back in on Zach Wilson and being like, hey, he might beat the guy still. Um, he's definitely not. It, it's it's clear that when that pressure gets to him. It, it really hinders how he plays football, but it kind of looked like he was playing carefree out there. Cause there were reports that like the jets and Salah were going to make him the starting quarterback again. And then the reports came out that it was like, no way I don't, he didn't want to play for the, like he didn't want to be the starter anymore because of everything that had happened, which can you really blame him when he's basically, you know, getting all this shit thrown on top of him for playing poorly. And then, they take him out and you're stuck with Tim Boyle and Trevor Simeon who are worse than Zach Wilson. And you look, I mean, the Jets looked exceptionally worse with them on the field than with Zach Wilson on the field. So to be like, yeah, he's probably gonna be the starter again. And then to have reports come out there, he just was like, hell no, I don't want to play for this team again. Are you kidding me? After everything that's happened. Uh, and for him to then go out there, play, score 30 points, the defense played hard. Like it was like rejuvenating for the Jets in a way. But if, you don't want to make make it now. It's like, all right, well, is, is Zach Wilson, he's going to be the starter for the rest of the year. I think he should have been the starter for the rest of the year. I don't think he should have actually been benched for anyone being like, are Tim Boyle and Trevor Simeon that much worse than Zach Wilson? Yes, they are. Absolutely, 100% they are. It's not even close. So even though Zach Wilson maybe not might not be good and it probably isn't a NFL starting caliber quarterback, he's all you have now. There are only a few weeks left in the season. You're not going to make the playoffs. Leave him in there. Let him get some confidence. And then ideally next season, if Rodgers stays completely healthy and Zach Wilson can learn a little bit more behind him, I don't know what the Jets are going to do. But it is the way that they have handled the QB situation internally and externally to fans and the media has been nothing short of a catastrophe. Uh, there has just been misreports, miscommunication up and down. They've handled it poorly. I mean, Zach Wilson is in hell. Like, and the Jets are also, they're, they're in QB hell, but Zach Wilson's right there with them. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, has had to put up with a lot of New York media bashing from the fans and, and from, you know, again, from the media and has just been bashed and bashed and bashed over the head with how much he sucks. And he's gotten benched multiple times. And then to have him, you know, thrown back out there and succeed, you feel good for him. And, and again, part of me thinks that that's because there really was no pressure. Like, these guys were so these guys that they tried out there the past few weeks were so much worse than you that they are now going back to you with their basically their tails between their legs and saying, Hey, Zach, can you go in there and for Robert Sala and uh Nathaniel Hackett, can you make them look good again? Because them benching you and then having those guys thrown in there made them look so much worse. And it was easier to just have Zach in there and take some and and basically everyone would no one was really pointing fingers at Robert Sala or Nathaniel Hackett for how poorly the Jets offense was. A lot of it was basically just pointed at Zach Wilson, say this guy can't play. He's not an NFL starting quarterback. Uh, and then when they removed him and they were worse, everyone was like, well, wait a second. Maybe it's not the quarterback. Maybe it's the coaches. So they put Zach back in and he won a football game and he looked good doing it. So like it's undeniable that. 
he has had moments where you can see clear as day, this kid has the talent to throw the football. You know, against the Eagles, against the Chiefs, uh, even to an extent against the Bills in week one, given the circumstances. And now here against the Texans, like he's shown that he has the talent. But for me, it, it very clearly seems like a mental thing for him where he just flat out panics. Uh, very easily and he gets flustered and he takes the worst sacks imaginable. Uh, just things that are very avoidable, but he just seems to fall into time and time again when things are going bad. And then when things do go bad for him, they just snowball into even worse, worse things to happen. And it just ends up looking like a complete mess. But when he gains some confidence and he's playing well, like that also builds the other way. It's just that more so than not, things go wrong for him. Uh, but when he does play well, that escalates, you know, he ends up continuing to play well. So it, it's regardless, I don't think he's the future of the Jets, unfortunately, for him and and for fans. But it, it's what they how how they have handled it and how they've handled him this season is nothing short of of a disgrace. Like they have made themselves look worse. They've really just put Zach Wilson through uh the, the torture chamber in terms of like he letting him take the brunt of it, embarrassing him, benching him, not just benching him, making him third string. You go from start of the third string. You're like, you're not even, even if Tim Boyle sucks, we're putting semi in over in you, over you like that. That is how they treated him. And then, you know, after a few weeks of that being a total disaster to run back to him and be like, Hey, you're the starter again is crazy to me. It's crazy. I mean, like the confidence, the diminishing confidence there is is nuts. And I know, obviously, like Sal is stuck in a spot, rocking a hard place here, and so is everyone else with the Jets. But it's just, it's stupid. It's so stupid. Uh, they, they've handled it very, very poorly. And that's really how it's gone all season for the Jets. Um, The Browns beat the Jaguars 31-27. to Trevor Lawrence looked horrible. Uh Probably shouldn't have started. I think there he hasn't missed like an entire game since high school, right? That's like his whole thing is that he's like an iron horse. But I mean, he looked bad. He looked flat out bad. There's no way he was mobile. I saw some of the highlights of this game. What he throw like three picks? Like he, I mean, the Browns defense is really good, and to have like a, a barely mobile. Uh, I mean, he has a high ankle sprain. Like he's not mobile. Um, so to have them win this game, I mean, yeah, twenty eight. On a high ankle sprain, you have Trevor Lawrence throw the ball 50 times. Doesn't make any sense to me. But uh, 28 of 50, 257 yards, three touchdowns, and three interceptions for Trevor Lawrence did not look good. And we all know my thoughts on Trevor Lawrence. But they are now 8 and 5, and so are the Browns, both 8 and 5. But with that Texans loss, they dropped to 7 and 6. So uh, the Jags are still in the clear there uh, in the AFC South. Ravens beat the Rams in overtime. Uh, the Rams are a team at six and seven that if they sneak into the playoffs, they could be sneaky dangerous. They could because Matt Stafford, he could still sling it, bro. He He's still got some left in that arm. Uh, the Bears beat the Lions, which should have been for the second time this year had they not blown the first meeting between them. But Justin Fields might just own Detroit like that just might be how like, regardless of how much better of a team Detroit really is. Um, Justin Fields 
might actually own them. Now with the Bears, again, it I would trade Justin Fields. I would call up Atlanta and be like, hey, what can you offer us for Justin Fields? Because they don't have a quarterback and they're not going to get one in the draft and there's not very many available. Justin Fields is young. He's physically talented. Maybe Arthur Smith in that. Arthur Smith feels like he runs the offense that the Bears should with Justin Fields, except he's running it with Desmond Ritter, who is not nearly as athletic as Justin Fields. So... I would like to see Atlanta trade for him. Um, Saints, Panthers, ew, 28-6. Both these teams are hard to watch. The Panthers stink. Uh, the lowest scoring game since I think it was 2006. With It was the Dolphins in Pittsburgh finished 3 to nothing, and that was in like a monsoon, super muddy conditions. This is a 3 nothing victory for the Vikings. Gross game. I can't believe the box score of this game, man. Uh, but the Vikings are seven and six, and the Raiders are five and eight. The magic with Antonio Pierce has seemed to wore off again. Now the Raiders are back to just being bad. The Niners uh beat the Seahawks 28 to 16. Uh Drew Locke played in this game, 269 yards, two touchdowns, and two interceptions. Really not as bad as I thought he was going to be. Uh, but McCaffrey had 16 carries and 149 on, on the ground. And Debo Samuel had seven catches, 149 yards, and a touchdown in the air. So just but Brock Purdy's the MVP. I'm sorry. It, it's it's rude. Uh, Kittle also scored a touchdown. The, the Niners are a unit, man. They, I mean, I would be absolutely shocked if this team did not win at all. They are unstoppable, really. Uh, very, very, very good football team. And also so exciting to watch. Bills, Chiefs, and Broncos, Chargers. So Bills, Chiefs, the Bills win 20-17. to 17. Um, The thing that's got everyone up in arms is Patrick Mahomes really being a baby. There was a sick play that happened where Mahomes threw it to Kelsey, and Kelsey threw a lateral to Tony, who ended up scoring a touchdown that would have been the go-ahead touchdown. However, Kadarius Tony was offsides. He lined up offsides. Refs threw the flag. He didn't check in. Uh, refs threw the flag. Took away the play. Mahomes was irate. They would go on to lose the game. And you'd even hear him say, uh, he said to Josh Allen in the in, in at midfield when they dapped up, like that was the worst fucking call I've ever seen in my life, which is like so baby to like run to the other quarterback and basically tell him you got lucky. Like that's nonsense. Um, and then to go on and keep saying about how like uh you're taking away a great play from a Hall of Fame player in Travis Kelsey, like. Not once did they say it was the wrong call. Like Kadarius Tony did not check in properly. Uh, he lined up offsides. They're gonna call it. Like that is a call that has been made more and more this year. Uh, it, it's it's brain dead. It's a brain dead mistake. You have to be make sure you're on size. Like on side. It's not a difficult thing to ask. But Kadarius Tony's not the sharpest tool in the shed. So uh, with with that, it's like. Mahomes complaining as much as he did is crazy to me. Like their whole argument is that at that moment in time during the game with what's at stake, you can't call him for being, you know, half a foot off sides, even though it was clear as day he was off sides. Uh, like you can't call it, which brings you back to the fact in the Super Bowl that James Bradbury got called for a questionable pass interference. Um that maybe didn't have to be called, but that won the Chiefs the Super Bowl. 
Uh, it gave them a first down, and from there on, it was basically it was over after that. And to to complain about that after how many times the Chiefs have been on the beneficiary side of a call in big games, to complain that way is just so tone deaf. You know, like you gotta, like you have to let them, you have to understand, like read the room. You know, you're expecting these calls because you're the Chiefs. You're Patrick Mahomes. You always get those calls. But now when they're against you, suddenly you don't like it. It made Mahomes very unlikable in the moment about how he just kept talking and talking, talking about the same points over and over again, which everyone was like, yeah, dude, it took away a great play. That sucks. It happens. It's football. How many times have we seen that? A ton. But at the same time, like, you can't keep complaining like this. The amount of times that you guys have gotten breaks in calls that we all know about, you can't complain. You have to relax, man. It, it just made him it made him very unlikable in, in this in this moment um for a, a lot of people. Uh so to see him complain like that was very unbecoming, but uh the Chiefs are 8 and 5. Definitely the worst Chiefs team we've seen so far led by Patrick Mahomes. Um they're going to I mean they're eight and five, and Denver's seven and six. So maybe the division isn't locked up. Because the Chiefs' remaining schedule is the Patriots, the Raiders, the Bengals, the Chargers. Never mind. Those should all be very winnable games for the Chiefs. Um, I'm gonna bet bet heavy on the Chiefs next week because they're gonna come out and just like explode, I think. But the Broncos at seven and six, they beat the Chargers 24 to seven. Justin Herbert leaves this game. He's out for the year now with his thumb injury, his thumb surgery, like I mentioned. But the Broncos the rest of the way have a tough game next week against Detroit. Um, ooh, a Saturday game, 12-16. Saturday, 8-15 p.m. Detroit and the uh the Broncos and the Lions. Uh, and then the Patriots and the Broncos play the week after that on Christmas Eve. Then they play New Year's Eve uh, against the Chargers again. And then they wrap up on January 7th against the Raiders. So the Broncos, very strong chance to make the playoffs. I'm excited. I would love to see them in the playoffs. Uh, but a good win here, 24 to 7. I did take them to cover. Good on me. Um, that was the only bet I hit on Sunday. I had three. I took the Texans, which after the first after watching the first quarter of the uh the Texans Jets game, I was like, why the hell did I bet on the Texans? Uh that was a, a dumb bet, Texans minus three, uh, just because of the weather. It was horrible. Uh, I did I did a parlay in the Bills, Chiefs, like none of my legs hit. It was like a four-leg parlay. They all missed. It wasn't even close. Uh, and then I bet on the Eagles on Sunday Night Football, and they got trounced. So my Broncos plus five and a half, or my Broncos plus two and a half was my only good bet. I did clean up on Monday night, though. Uh, but the Sunday night game, real quick, Cowboys-Eagles. I mean, the Cowboys continue to dominate at home. Um, if the Cowboys can get – if they can steal this division from the Eagles, because the Cowboys are now 10 – both teams are now 10-3, and three, and they've split their season series. So they have a, a real, real shot. The Cowboys rest of the way, they play the Bills. The Cowboys have a very difficult schedule the rest of the way. They play the Bills, the Dolphins, the Lions, three tough games in a row, and the Commanders to end the season. Whereas the Eagles play the Seahawks, the Giants, the Cardinals, and the Seahawks. 
and the Giants. I don't know why I said the Seahawks twice. They play the Seahawks, the Giants, the Cardinals, and the Giants, which you have to think are probably all wins. And whereas Dallas has a very difficult, more a much more difficult schedule. But if somehow, some way, the Cowboys win that division and get home field advantage, um, and get a couple home playoff games, like they are going to be a threat, a real, real, real threat, which is not something I say lightly because generally I'm like, ha ha ha, the Cowboys just going to lose in the second round of the playoffs. Like they have a real chance this year if they get enough playoff, uh, if they get home playoff games, they have a real chance to make the NFC championship game, which I would imagine they would then go on to lose to the 49ers. But uh, blowout, uh, the Eagles scored 13 points, but their touchdown was. Uh, a fumble recovery return for a touchdown. No offensive touchdown score. They have two field goals from Jake Elliott and then the the touchdown run back um, by Jalen Carter. And that was it. So their offense was completely stagnant. The Cowboys popped off. Dak Prescott's in the MVP conversation now. They, I mean, they look really good. The Cowboys at home are arguably the best team in football. They really have like the true definition of home field advantage. Uh, the Niners, from you know, for my money, obviously home road doesn't matter. They're the best team in football. But the Cowboys at home are very, very close to be considering the best team in football. They dominate at home, dude. And honestly, with them almost beating the Eagles in Philly and then beating the crap out of them in Dallas, it's kind of hard to make the argument that the Eagles are the are the better team right now. And for what it's worth with with the Eagles, I know Eagles fans will even attest to this. Like the defense is not near nearly the same, uh, especially the secondary. And then the offense is just not as explosive and as consistent as it was last year. Jalen Hurts seems a little hobbled, and he has seemed a little hobbled for the last couple of weeks. Um, but they are just, I mean, the Eagles just look all out of whack. And again, they're 10 and 3. They're gonna cruise to the playoffs, obviously. They want the division. They don't want to play a wild card game, but they need to kind of figure it out because they do not feel and they do not look like the same team that they did last year that made that Super Bowl run. They just don't, they don't look like it. Um, and I think uh, obviously this game against the Cowboys, the offense looked absolutely horrible, but the defense for me is is probably the bigger concern because that defense was lights out dominant lockdown last year. And now they kind of get carved up by any exceptional quarterback wide receiver duo, like any, any offense that's like a high octane offense, they're, they're getting carved up. It hasn't looked good. So you gotta be a little bit weary of them right now. Uh, the Monday night games were really fun. Giants 24 to 22. They beat the Green Bay Packers and the Titans beat the Dolphins 28 to 27, man. A money line parlay of the Giants and Titans probably would have went crazy. I did. I wanted to take the Giants money line, but I ended up being a coward and just took the five and a half points that they were getting at home. They were dominating this game from start to finish. Their defense, again, another excellent outing for this New York defense. They got turnovers. Um, and they were playing really well. And then Saquon Barkley almost blew it out of all people. Saquon Barkley almost blew it. He broke a tackle and continued to run, but then stumbled shortly after and fell to the ground without anyone touching him. And the ball popped loose in what should have been 
the game ceiling drive. This this should have been the end of the game here, basically. And they could have run out the clock, kicked the field goal, and the game would have been over. But uh, Saquon falls, fumbles the ball. The Packers pick it up. Jordan Love drives down the field. They score a touchdown, and they take a 22-21 to 21 lead. They go for two, and the Giants get a huge stop on the two-point conversion. And Tommy DeVito is able to drive down the field, bro. Drive down the field. I think it was Wandale Robinson had a great game. Um, and he had a huge catch and run at the end there where it basically puts them in the field goal range. They cut, run it a couple times. Randy Bullock comes in and kicks it right through the uprights. And the Giants win 24 to 22, uh, really stifling the uh, the Green Bay Packers playoff hopes there and putting them at six and seven. Now the Giants are five and eight. And somehow only like a game out of a wild card spot, which is just like disgusting to think about. But Tommy DeVito, the legend grows, dude. They had his age, his agent was there at the game and he's like in all black, black fedora, like the Italian gold horn necklace was crazy. Um, I just, it was, it was, he looked like a character out of a Tim Robinson sketch. And if you ever seen, I think you should leave on Netflix with Tim Robinson, like watch some of his stuff and then go and look at Tommy DeVito's agent and tell me he doesn't look like someone out of a Tim Robinson sketch. It's absolutely hysterical in the best way possible. And I saw a couple of comments where it's like Italians love when other Italians succeed, which is true. Cause it's like one of us, one of us. And that's how like that cult, our, our culture there really <laughs> kind of expands. And now it's like this random kid from Jersey who happens to be playing for the Giants and has three ways. He's won three games as a starting quarterback for the New York Giants uh, and really like made this season enjoyable because this season was such a goddamn disaster. And now all of a sudden it's like kind of fun to sit there and watch the Giants and see Tommy DeVito play football and see if the Giants can win a football game. Um, He's been the, the biggest bright spot. And listen, if all else fails with, with him on the Giants and, and all that, I really do think Tommy DeVito in this stretch of, of football games that he's been able to play and win has probably made him himself who knows how many millions of dollars because for like the next 10 years, this guy could be a backup. And if he doesn't play, if he doesn't start another game, he'll get 10 years of work as a backup because he'll just be like, hey, remember when he played for the Giants and he won like three, four games for them? at the end of the, uh, from the middle of the end of the year with all the injuries that the Giants had a quarterback and how, how big of a mess they were, what, what he did. And he came in and was able to like kind of change it around like that. Oh, this run alone buys him like 10 years as a backup quarterback in the NFL. That's I think for him, that's like worst case scenario too, which is like, he could still, we'll, we'll see what happens here, but uh, he he's fun to watch the whole thing with like, his mom making him chicken cutlets and all that's funny. Uh, the re reporters asked him the other day, they were like, did you see like the clips of your agent and your dad, like hugging? And they gave the kisses on the cheek and they were all excited. And he's like, ah, oh, yeah, that's, that's funny. It's like all, all comedies, like good for business though. <laughs> Everyone was like, there's no way this guy just said it's good for business. <laughs> that's crazy. Like he really is. He is like that. It, it's awesome, man. To see him playing the way he's been playing. Um, he had like around 230 yards of total offense, I think, and uh, a touchdown. Saquon had a really good game up until that fumble. And you could see like he dropped to a knee after that field goal went through because he knew he got bailed out because that that was going on him. That that was 
that was a loss that was like we had it in the bag and Saquon gave it back to the Packers of all people Saquon to do that um on a non-contact falling to the ground ball coming out too it's crazy so uh with that Giants are five and eight the Packers are six and seven a great Monday night football win because the Giants are notoriously horrid in primetime games and they've had like five primetime games this year and they've lost all of them. So to win on Monday night football is uh, really fun to see the other Monday night football game. What a win for Mike Vrabel, Will Levis and the Tennessee Titans with three minutes left in the game. The dolphins were up two touchdowns. They were up 13 points and with two forty left. Will Levis throws a touchdown to, DeAndre Hopkins, they convert the two-point conversion. Now it's 27 to 21. They get a three and out, a three and out from the Dolphins and get the ball back and march down the field to where Derrick Henry then scores a touchdown with one minute and 49 seconds left. Kick the extra point. They are winning 28 to 27. And the defense just absolutely engulfed the Dolphins in the second half. Uh, Tyreek Hill was injured because of a drop tackle that was... I don't know, pretty dirty, but it is a legal tackle. Um, He hurt his knee. He ended up running off the field and trying to like hype up his teammates, but he did not come back in until I think like early in the fourth quarter. And even so he was barely playing snaps. Like he just very clearly was, he had a couple big catches. Um, The Dolphins turned it over a ton too. Like Tua had a couple fumbles, Uh, just really sloppy, sloppy play by the Dolphins, and I think more so, though, Mike Mike Vrabel outcoached Mike McDaniel. Mike Vrabel absolutely 100% outcoached Mike McDaniel. Uh, He big-boyed him, and this was a crazy good win for the Tennessee Titans. Uh, And and for the Dolphins, you are now staring down the barrel of the gun because you might lose this AFC East lead here. Uh, You are 9-4. and with a brutal schedule coming up. You're nine and four. You play the Jets, the Cowboys, the Ravens, and the Bills, the final week of the regular season. And the Bills at seven and six, right? They're seven and six. The Dolphins are nine and four. But the Bills play the Cowboys, the Chargers, the Patriots, and the Dolphins. And that game against the Cowboys next week is at home. So with that, it's like, if the Bills win out, and the, I mean, are the Dolphins, you're telling me the Dolphins are going to beat the, they're going to sweep the Cowboys, the Ravens and the Bills. If I had to, I mean, they're probably going to beat the Jets next week, but if I had to guess as to, uh, they probably lose two of the next four. So let's just say they lose to the, let's just say they lose to the Bills and they lose. I mean, they, how they might lose three in a row. They might lose to the Cowboys, Ravens and, uh, and Dolphins. I, I mean, I don't... They looked horrible against the Titans. Horrible. Like, definition of a trap game, and they fell right into it. Horrible, dude. And now they got a really brutal five-game stretch here, or four-game stretch here at the end of the year. I wouldn't be surprised if the Jets are, aren't are a walk in the park for them either, but it, it's like you're in a position where you've put yourself in a vulnerable situation for the Bills to uh, creep from behind and snatch away this AFC East title. And I wouldn't be surprised 
if that's what happened. Um, the Dolphins, that is that is an unacceptable loss, honestly. Like, it, you want to use words like unacceptable. Unacceptable loss to the Tennessee Titans on Monday Night Football. And inexcusable, too. Like, you, you just, you, with everything on the line right now, one win, that win puts you three games in front of the Bills with four games left. And you play the Bills on one of those games, the final week of the regular season. So even if you were to lose to the Jets, Cowboys, and Ravens, you'd still control your own destiny by at least beating the Bills in the final week of the regular season. And even if you you beat the Titans, then you beat the Jets next week, let's just say. Now these last games, these last three games don't matter. You have the division locked up. It doesn't matter what the Bills are doing because now you're – it just – you put yourself in such a difficult situation where now you have to rely on outside factors to make sure you don't blow this lead. Not good. Not good. It, honestly, like it's a nightmare scenario for Dolphins fans. It really, really is. Uh, so that is the final wrap up there for the NFL. Um, some storylines and stuff that we get to go over, but to end the podcast here, I want to talk about Godzilla minus one. What a movie. Uh, that I got to go see. I went to go see Napoleon also. That sucked. I'm sorry. Napoleon was horrible. Uh, my my mom wanted to go see it, so I went to the movies with her, but that movie sucked. Um, it it felt, and, and Ridley Scott basically, I know Ridley Scott in, in some of these interviews basically said, like, screw historians. I don't care what they think about my movie. You should probably listen to him. Um, this movie would have been better as like a an eight to 10 part miniseries on Amazon Prime like that's what it felt like this would really like succeeded uh or Apple it was an Apple movie I think so Apple TV you should have just done a series on it on Apple so that would have been better because this was like it felt like he read Napoleon's Wikipedia page and just like made the scenes based on the Wikipedia page every battle felt the same there was like no stakes in it at all um and generally with biopics movies will take like a a moment or a characteristic or an event that happened in that person's life because you can't you there are like some hollywood artistic liberties that you get to take with like historical figures specifically but generally speaking everything has to be kind of like correct you can't take too much liberties and just start lying about shit uh but with napoleon it's like it felt like they really wanted you to believe that he loved his wife and, and he loved his wife despite the fact that they were married for so many years and she couldn't bear children. And that felt like it should have been a huge like plot point to kind of humanize the war general, you know, that would have been perfect. But instead there's like no chemistry between these people. There's like a couple of random sex scenes thrown in there that are completely inauthentic. There's no chemistry between Joaquin Phoenix and whoever the wife is. Um, no offense to her. I, I, I'm not looking at the IMDb page here, but there's no chemistry between the characters. Uh, the, the, the pacing is jarring. I mean, the first hour of the movie covers like 10 years. And it's just like everything is back to back to back to back to back. It doesn't give you any sense of how much time has passed. It doesn't give you any indication of like where they are other than like a little quick title card, which like, okay, why is this significant to me? 
You know, if you're not like a Napoleon nut, how are you supposed to know what's significant and what's not? It was just like the pacing was jarring. The characters like they really missed an opportunity to like humanize Napoleon because they at the end, they even like listed off like here's six battles that Napoleon led and six million people died of his people, like his soldiers he killed six million soldiers by the way he fought these these battles that he won and some he lost. And like, that is a jarring stat, sure. But like, aren't the best thing to do there is to be like, well, you mentioned in the movie that he loves his wife, that even after 15 years of marriage, which you're an hour and a half into the movie, now suddenly he's getting divorced and it's been 15 years. And you're like, all right, I don't really understand that. And he's like, kind of sad when his wife dies from basically like having a strep throat, right? She dies and everyone's like, okay, he's broken up about it clearly. But you get no sense of how much he loved his wife wife, other than like the words that he spoke, which were like very far and few between. So if that was your anchor point and then you just kind of built around that of the fact that this guy is also a war general, one of the most famous war generals ever and an emperor afterwards, like that would have made a whole lot of sense. But it's just so jarring. Like, you know how you read a Wikipedia page and it's just like, one major event after another, after another, and after another. That's what this movie is. It's just one thing after another, after another, with just hard cut transitions. Like we're we're in the the palace room, and Napoleon's talking about a couple lines of dialogue about something, and then all of a sudden it's a cut scene, and he's in another battle, and you're like, "What the hell? What is going on? Whose conflict is this?" Um, it's crazy. It was bad it was just bad i didn't enjoy any of it (laughs) It, and i like joaquin phoenix but that was just and ridley scott too like great director but oh my god did they sail it in that was it was bad it was really bad uh and then a couple days later i went to go see godzilla minus one and it kind of cleansed my palate because that was a really good movie a a movie about it's entirely in Japanese, made by a Japanese studio. My friend who was really into Godzilla was just telling me like there's the American owned Godzilla franchise and then there's the Japanese owned Godzilla franchise. And this is the Japanese owned one. And it takes place post World War II. And it follows a kamikaze pilot who abandoned his post. And when he gets back and this I think it's his mother. I'm not, I actually, I might've missed one of this part. I think it's his mom, but she f- sees that he's alive. And she's like, wait a second. Aren't you a com- Weren't you a kamikaze pilot? Like you're, you're going to show your face ha- here. You clearly abandoned your post. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. You're a compl- you're dishonorable. And a lot of people that find out he's, he was a kamikaze pilot and that he clearly is alive. So he didn't do his job. A lot of people, they, they're like, you're the reason why we lost the war. You're the reason why my son died. You're the reason why so many people died. Because people like you, cowards, dishonorable people, be- abandoned their, their job, their duty. You're the reason why so many people died. And that's a guilt that our main character carries with him throughout the entire, uh, throughout the majority of the movie up until the very end where he learns to live rather than want to die. You know, because it's the post-war. And the movie itself does a really good job of showing how the Japanese government failed its its citizens during the war. Because they go out of their way to mention that like 50% of their soldiers died of starvation and malnourishment. And uh, from being unequipped to deal with the harsh conditions of war. And the, the, 
the supply chain and the chain of command were so bad for the uh, the Japanese. Uh, so the the movie actually it does a really good job of showing like the the effects that World War II had on Japan. Um, and then they just have Godzilla in there as like this giant monster that formed from the uh, from the the depths of the nuclear bomb, and he shows up in the beginning. Uh, and he is, you know, he's like two Yao Mings. He's pretty big, but he's not, you know, I can tear down a single building big yet. And then a couple of years go by and he, he resurfaces. And let me tell you something. Godzilla looks awesome. He looks so good in this movie. The CGI with the 1940s Japan backdrop is so beautiful to look at. Like it is a really great movie. The cinematography, some of the shots of Godzilla and the people are fantastic. There's there's one specific moment where you see it in the trailer where he has his scales pop up from his back where he's about to launch like his basically his nu- nuke beam, his hyper beam cannon and the effects that they made. So with with the American Godzilla and like Godzilla vs Kong and Godzilla King of the Monsters and stuff, Godzilla's like hyper beam is very like flame. I can, you know, use it for a long period of time. And it's it's kind of like a continuous stream that I can use until I'm done using it, right? In this one, it's it's literally like a pulse cannon where he charges it up and it's just like one and then that's it. And then there, but there's like a ripple effect that they show when he uses it in the city. That is so goddamn cool and something that we have not seen before. Um, so just to do that, to continue to be original with Godzilla, that has, you know, that's a, a franchise and a, and a, a kaiju monster that's been around for decades. So to, to be able to show something new like that was so dope, but the, the progression of some of the characters, uh, in this movie and the action sequences, I mean, it, the way they defeat Godzilla as well is like ingrained in science. It's not just like we're going to drop a bomb on him and hope he blows up. <laughs> like they really, they have a whole plan to like sink him to the ocean floor and then rapidly bring him back up. Uh, and it works, but of course Godzilla is Godzilla. So his regeneration powers l- loosely happen. They leave it open at the end where it's like, yeah, we can make more Godzilla movies if we want. Cause he's not actually dead. Uh, but it's so it's so sick. Uh, he they have this really cool effect when Godzilla uses his hyper beam cannon. He basically burns his face, like he burns his throat, he burns his face. So he has to uh, he has to recover and and grow back and regenerate that way until he uses it again. Like he can't use it consecutively because it hurts him, uh, and it's a very powerful attack. So like things like that. You know, they had a close up of him after he used it, and you could see his face, like the side of his face smoldering. Uh, very, very dope movie, visually unbelievable. Uh, story wise, way more than anything I was expecting. Like, you have the trailer for Godzilla and Kong came out, and that literally is just like Godzilla and King Kong running around beating the shit out of everybody. And that's like very much a giant kaiju monster beat em up movie. This movie is like, like I said, post-World War II, Japan, they had a whole logic and reasoning as to like, why can't we call the U.S.? 
why can't we call other countries to come help us out and defeat this giant monster creature that's destroying our battleships one ship at a time? Like, why can't we do that? And they say, like, any movement between the U.S. and Russia is going to escalate the Cold War. We can't be held responsible or is going to escalate tensions between them. Like, we can't be held responsible for that. Um, like, and they aren't going to help us because of that. So it's like we're on our own. You know, I, I thought that was really interesting that they provided a logistical reasoning in that time period as to why they can't phone for help from other countries. Um, but the movie does a great job of doing that, describing how, you know, the after effects of the war on Japan and its government and its people and just being like an average citizen and how horrible it was, um, why their government failed them during the war, the effects of PTSD on these soldiers and, you know, watching their comrades die, uh, the just the motif of live just wanting to live you know because our main character is a kamikaze pilot and the entire time he's being called a disgrace and dishonorable and he has a moment where it's like the only thing he has right now is to like die you know that that's the only way he can recover his honor is to is to die killing this monster and there's like a great character arc there that they have so it just all in all it's a really really good movie i'd highly recommend it um even if you're not a godzilla fan this will make you one so yeah i mean napoleon two out of ten godzilla minus one was like an eight and a half out of ten spectacular movie uh but that'll do it for this episode of from my point of view now uh thank you all for listening i appreciate you as always have a great rest of your week. Next week is the last episode before we go on our uh, Christmas, New Year's hiatus. Uh, so thank you all for listening. And I'll talk to you all next week.